Good morning. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible together, one book at a time and one chapter at a time. And here we are in Isaiah chapter 42. And, you know, th this is a turning point here. We're really focusing on God's chosen servant. And the way that he describes his servant is just maybe not what you would expect. You know, you expect, you know, the servant of God. That's a title that belonged to Moses, belonged to David, you know, kind of maybe even a glorious title. But, you know, here's this description. The servant of God is blind. The servant of God is deaf. The servant of God doesn't know what's going on. Well, what's going on? Why is God describing his servant like that? How does that fit the situation of the people who are in exile in Babylon? Uh, how does that fit in with the story of salvation for us who know Jesus Christ as God's ultimate chosen servant? So these are the questions we're going to be looking at today, looking at this chapter. And today we're joined by one of our uh, guests who's been on before. We've got Pastor Brian Davies, pastor of Lord of Glory Lutheran Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. Welcome back, brother. Good to have you with us. This uh, servant of God idea is, is just really takes a really interesting turn here, doesn't it? Oh, it's a beautiful passage of Scripture, and it's great to be back with you. We are so fortunate uh, to have this time together and for our listeners as well. We get a, we get a feast of a Bible text today. Def well, definitely. It feels that way every time that you're in Isaiah, right? Even when it's just like yeah. eight or nine verses. I mean, it's just Isaiah is just so rich and everything just seems to be, I don't know, at the same time, so familiar because all this Isaiah stuff gets picked up in the New Testament and in our hymns and just in all of our imagery. But at the same time, just always unfamiliar, like he just has this otherworldly perspective on things. Oh, and goodness, this is like... Uh... You nailed it with Isaiah. It is all over Isaiah. This is a great example of it. I mean, this chapter alone is, is like an onion. You just keep peeling it back, and you get more, 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 more. And so, yes, we'll see some familiar language, but also I'll be challenging us to look at some of the unfamiliar parts and see the power and richness that is in those words that we may might not have seen before. Very good. Well, I'm looking forward to peeling into this onion feast then. Um <laughs> So as we get started, would you say a prayer for us and for everybody listening? Let us pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you have made yourself known to us as the God of all creation, uh, our Savior Jesus Christ, and also the Spirit who is with us. Thank you for the privilege it is to study your word, to be in your word, to be blessed and strengthened by it. Open our minds and eyes and hearts uh, to hear from you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, may God open our hearts as we open up the onion here. So um, mm. I'm just going to have that, that image that you use stuck in my head the whole time. All right. So the first layer here is in the first four verses. The, the servant is introduced. Um, at first, I mean, it seems like a pretty positive um, introduction to the servant. Uh, before we read it, do you have anything you want to note about how this maybe ties into what we've read so far in chapters 40 and 41? Um, no, I would just encourage our listeners um, to make this part, you know, uh, not just Isaiah 42 as a standalone, but it is 
meant to be read in in the chapters before it and then even in the chapters that follow it. So no specific introduction other than to say, I would encourage our people to, to not just dive into 42, but peek ahead and peek after too. Right. Oh, and we saw that last time that that was really helpful that, I mean, 41 was really kind of a bridge between these two that, you know, there is a little bit of this idea of the remnant of Judah going on in Isaiah chapter 40. Um, but it's in 41 that the servant of God idea really finally gets introduced and that kind of bridges us into what we have here today. This servant of God that's that's there, that's that's unafraid, that feels like a worm of a man, like in the Psalm 22, um, but mm. it's going to be transformed. And so, I mean, this has been what Isaiah has been getting us ready for with the last two chapters, this remnant of God that is undergoing this transformation here. So, so here we have it. Let's go ahead and read the first four verses and sink our teeth into this, beginning with the first one in 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So, I mean, it's it's an interesting description. On the one hand, it seems majestic, I think, right? Like, you know, establishing justice, the coastlands mm-hmm. await, you know, the word for, for the law, right, from him. And on the other hand, I mean, uh, meek, gentle, right? This description of a bruised yeah. reed he will not break, but all these things tied together in one person. It's a beautiful passage, and just to set the stage here, this is the word of the Lord talking about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is clearly talking about Jesus. And so this language gets picked up in many places in mm-hmm. the New Testament, which makes this passage a great one to look at because there's just, it's so easy to talk about. Um, Luther himself says, I open the Bible and I see Jesus on every page. Some of those pages are harder to see Jesus on. This is an easy one. (laughs) Um, Let's start with that first word, behold. This is like introduction language, like pay attention, see this. Um, You know, I don't know how we'd um, think about introductions today, you know, without further ado, or ladies and gentlemen, you know, but this is the Almighty God saying, hey, pay attention. Uh, remember John the Baptist um, says right. uh, of, of Jesus, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes uh, takes the sin of the world upon himself. And so this is the right. same, you know, pay attention language. And so mm-hmm. how is Jesus described? So interestingly, it's not behold the new king. It's behold right. my servant. Holy yeah. cow. So we're going to be looking for a Messiah, a Redeemer, uh, one who's going to fix all the world's wrongs and make everything right. You'd picture triumph, crown, victory, war, battle, but instead it's a servant. And, I mean, our listeners can probably think of all the ways in which Jesus does this in his earthly ministry, but washing feet, you know, that's who Jesus right. is. And so, behold, here is the Messiah. Who is he? My servant. Beautiful. 
Then we get right. more language um, that gets picked up in the New Testament um, at the baptism of Jesus and also the transfiguration right. of Jesus. Um, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so mm-hmm. same language here. I've chosen him. My soul delights in him. I have put my spirit upon him. I love this because this is Trinitarian language. So people right. who will say, you know, the Trinity is not in the Bible, like the word T-R-I-N-T-Y is not in the Bible. Right. We see Trinitarian language and concepts all over the Bible. And here's a great one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, speaking of Son, who has the Spirit. Right. And, and so, I mean, it's really, especially with the way that Matthew goes and just cites this whole section here in chapter yeah. 12, I mean, it's easy to see how this page of the Bible really just, you, you see Jesus on it as uh, that Luther quote goes that, you know, and it's interesting in the context in Matthew because, you know, there, there he is doing these miraculous things and, and people are having these tremendous reactions to him, both in terms of, I mean, being amazed and, and, and being put mm-hmm. to wonderment, but also um, the ones who are conspiring against him. And so you've got like, you know, all of this, like he's attracting lots of attention, right? But then he, what's, what's he do, right? It says in Matthew 12, you know, he withdrew from there. He, um, mm. you know, many followed him, but he ordered them not to make him known. It's humility. He's not doing it all to, to make a big splash and to gain a, win a popularity contest, right? There's this humility that's just not self-seeking in terms of, um, you know, attention and glory and fame and all the rest of it. Um, so, I mean, this, this description really, both on the one hand, you have people awaiting the words from his mouth to establish law and justice, right? As it says in verse four, but on the other hand, like he is, he is coming gently, humbly. I mean, it just applies to Jesus I mean, perfectly there as it, as it shows in Matthew. Yeah. And I, we, we are getting a wonderful portrait of who Jesus is with this text. Um, verse two he doesn't cry out, make it, make it hurt in the street. He does not push himself aggressively on anybody. That's the ministry of Jesus Christ. A bruised yeah. reed he will not break, a, a faintly burning look he will not quench. You would expect someone with a king to have like a forceful entry. Jesus' entry is the entry of a servant. Yeah, that, that's such an interesting image to me, that faintly burning wick he will not quench, you know? I mean, it's one of these images that I feel like kind of loses its effect on us because... We, we don't commonly interact with candles mm. and, and faintly burning wicks <laughs> that often, right? Even even in our churches, right? We tend to have those those oil candles, right? Mm. And so they, they, they never like burn low and there's like just a smoldering wick at the bottom, right? That never happens even in church with the candles, right? right. But, but, but this image of like this candle that's just on the verge of going, this light, this light lit candle, it's on the verge of going out. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes I guess we're left with that when we do the, uh, we have that Christmas Eve tradition in many places of like passing out the candles and singing silent night by candlelight. You know, and sometimes maybe you get the stumpy one that's been used for a few years, right? (laughs) (laughs) And it's like barely hanging on. And if you move too fast or if anyone around you moves too fast, it's just going to go out. Right. Yeah. Like, I think that's kind of the image, right? That it's like his, his entry is so gentle it's so it's so slow it's so unassuming it's not coming in with like a big rush of wind as all the horses and chariots thunder 
uh, in his train. Like, no, like he, he, he walks into, he walks into the situation so gently that even this smoldering wick uh, continues to burn and is not disturbed. Yeah. Well done. And, and he acts compassionately on everyone. You know, the world has metrics for who is, who is a VIP and who isn't. Right. You know, and you would expect a Messiah to come and walk in the room and say, okay, who's the most important ones, you know, to garner right. influence. Um, here's a vision of Jesus who cares about everyone in the room equally, um, striving even to not break the bruised reed or, you know, uh, extinguish the, 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 the stump that's left of the candle, but bringing, bringing love and justice and grace and compassion to everyone equally. So it's really clear how this applies to Jesus, ultimately. And the question that remains, though, is how, how does this perhaps apply in a limited way to the situation of Isaiah's, well, not necessarily like his own day, but the situation in the future that he's speaking to, the situation of the exiles that we've been looking at in chapters 40 and 41. You know, in, in 41, what we just read, we had this picture of God raising up Cyrus of Persia, uh, not exactly a humble servant who comes in unassumingly not breaking bruised reeds or blowing out burning wicks. Um, quite the opposite, Tra- trampling down his enemies as if they are nothing and as if they are dust, right? So in, in the previous chapter, it's Cyrus who's uh, being raised up and who's you know going to war in some respects for the people of God. And then there's you know God addressing his people, Jacob, Israel, and calling them my servant. So is there a limited way in which the remnant of Israel in exile uh, has these words apply to them in their situation? Well, I think it's uh, uh, wise to look at this text and say this is just this is not just about us in 2019. This is right. a word of hope intended for 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 the people of Israel. Um, I think we're going to hear that word loud and clear later on in this chapter where Israel is directly addressed here, but I think it's almost the way I see it is pointing to God's people in this time and in, in, in place and saying, even though uh, judgment and justice are coming to you because of your unrighteousness, um, ultimately this Messiah is in the future to come to deliver and um, don't stop believing even in the midst of everything that's about to come to you, that justice will come from God for all. Right. Yeah. No. I. Th- I think definitely there is this uh, this word that is meant to inspire hope, and encourage them to hold on, and I mean it's similar in that respect to what we just read in forty one, where there's this description that you know although you feel like you're, you're the worm, right, and and you've got nothing going on, and you're small, and you're weak, and you're powerless, you know you're going to be made into this threshing sledge is the term right <laughs> and you're gonna have teeth and you're gonna you know be threshing and winnowing even the mountains right you know there's this description that you know like like hang on like it, it's going to happen um you're not yeah. going to be like this forever um and, and that's so it's so interesting though to, to have that sort of powerful glorious message right contrasted here with this here's my servant and you know, he's not going to make a big noise. He's not going to make a big mm-hmm. splash. He's not going to break any bruised reeds. Right. So I, I feel like it's um, perhaps it's, it's a way of God kind of showing them the silver lining and all this and saying, look, you, you you're going to go through exile. 
you're going to be brought low. You're going to be humbled. And that's, that's a, un, that's an unpleasant reality. But in all of that, I'm going to use that to teach you how to be humble um, and how mm -hmm. to, how to not think that you're better than all the rest of the nations. You are my servant, but you're not above reproach that, that there is some, some, some discipline. And I think that's a term that's used by Isaiah elsewhere, that, that there is something benevolent, even in the midst of the punishment of exile. Yeah. And I think when you hear that word, you realize that that word is meant for us as well. And I think when we get to the judgment piece and the warning piece later on in 42, we ought to make sure that we read that with the Bible in one hand and a mirror in the other. Absolutely. Well, let's let's press on then and get closer to that part that's coming up. Here we have verse 5. Let's pick it up there. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell them, I tell you of them. So, I mean, the language is very similar to 41, the, the stuff about God being able to predict the future, that carved idols are silent and are nothing like him, um, mm -hmm. the calling to righteous purpose, being the creator of heaven and earth. I mean, all of this is seems to be building on 41. The thing that's a, a little bit um, different is that verse 7 there, to open the eyes of the blind and to bring out the prisoners. Now, that's a development that we hadn't seen in 41. It's a wonderful passage, and it does build on 41 and give us even more. A um, couple quick things to note. Number one, uh, the idea of God as creator is hugely important to God throughout the scriptures. And so um, creation and God as creator, he's always pointing back to that work so that we don't miss it. And I think that's especially a timely message for us where creation has somehow become uh, an issue. Um, and then we get in verse 6, a wonderful I am statement. Um, Jesus picks up on these in John's gospel. Here is another one. Um, Yahweh saying, I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. That's relationship language. Uh, later on in the gospels, Jesus will say, I and the Father are one. And I think that's forecasted and foreshadowed here. I personally love 42 verse 7. It brings to mind another passage. Uh, I think it's Isaiah 49 verse 6, which says it's too small a thing uh, for me just to kind of focus on uh, the tribes of Israel and Judah. I will also make you a light for the nations. Yep. God was always a God on mission. And so this is the, the ministry of Jesus is meant to go worldwide and for all of humanity, this was meant for everyone. Thanks be to God, because that means that it's meant for us. 
Yeah, that language of a light to the nations, and we, we have seen that. We saw that really early on back in, I mean, my goodness, wasn't that like around chapter 9 or chapter 11 um, that we saw in a small way that came to pass with Hezekiah that as God had acted in grace and mercy to them and had saved that remnant of Jerusalem, that the people were brought back to Jerusalem and were able to resettle Judah, and even people from the north, they got to come back and celebrate the Passover and hear the word of the Lord, which had been put aside under kings mm. like Jotham and Ahaz. Um, but but here, it's being promised again, um, and it's, what, what a welcome promise, that there's a light to the nations that's going to come out of an even deeper darkness, because as bad as the Assyrian situation was with Jerusalem besieged by the Assyrians. I mean, this is even worse. This is the darkness of exile. This is the darkness of the temple's been destroyed. Jerusalem's been destroyed. I mean, there, there, there seems to be hardly anything out. And that's, I think, why you get that prisoner language that the, the prisoners, as they were, the exiles, get to leave the dungeon of Babylon and go back home. And uh, that's, I mean, so I think in that way, it really does clearly speak to that situation. But I mean, it, it has it has to be a little bit ironic and interesting that this is the language used that when Jesus comes onto the scene, it seems to apply very well. Yet there's a particular prisoner who does not come out from the dungeon in the case of our Lord Jesus, right? Mm. It's a beautiful, beautiful part, and the fact that we can look at all that Jesus does um, and and see this kind of pointing to Him. And then verse right. 9, Behold, former things have come to pass, new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Um, you know, when people are in darkness and hopelessness, sometimes it seems like there's nothing to grab onto. There's no hope. And this is meant as a word of hope, both for uh, the people of Isaiah's time, and they were about to really see darkness, as you mentioned. But it's also true for us, and how much darkness and despair are our people experiencing now? Uh, quite a load. Right, and because we, we can relate that there is this darkness that we experience, I mean, I, I don't, I, I think we can also relate, you know, to John the Baptist, that was the one I was trying to allude to earlier, that, I mean, there is some irony in all of this. I mean, there's really a lot of irony in, in this portion of Isaiah, because here we are in, in verse 7, right? And uh, God's talking about, you know, to open the eyes that are blind. Well, in a minute here, he's going to call his own servant blind, right? Yeah. Um, to, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. Well, there in the case of our Lord Jesus, when he goes and, you know, he opens the eyes of the blind and he, you know, heals the lame so that they can walk and he does all these things. John the Baptist stays in prison and is executed, so mm -hmm. there's a lot of ways that, you know, when these words then get applied to our Lord Jesus and to our own situation, it can feel really ironic and we can feel like, man, you know, there's supposed to be this great light shining in the darkness, but this is a very strange way for that all to happen. Yeah, sometimes it's really messy. Sometimes we don't see it. And that's why um, we are a theology of the cross people and not a theology of glory people, meaning we're not looking for victory here on earth. Um, we're looking for faithfulness and goodness and righteousness that comes ultimately in Jesus Christ. We get blessings on the side of heaven. Thanks be to God for them. But um, thanks be to God, we don't receive our reward until much later. 
Yeah, and I think that the that that kind of ironic theology of the cross, right? Because there's nothing more ironic than the theology of the cross, right? That mm. you know, in, in our Lord's um, death and defeat and mocking and um, humiliation, that there is the way of him being lifted up and glorified and savior and victor and all the rest. I mean, so theology of the cross is just the, in some ways the theology of irony uh, and that's going to be embraced really um, in, in verse 18 and following. So we should go ahead and, and press on. I think we still have a little bit of time before our break here. So just to give us a, a little bit more before maybe two more minutes here, picking it up at verse four, uh, no, no, verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. Let the villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Silah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I've held my peace. I've kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. So just some initial comments before we go into our break here. I mean, it's, it's again, kind of more of this return from exile language. But, but here, you know, in contrast to the meek servant of God, God's coming out like a man of war. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is, these are the type of passages that give me compassion for people who get confused by the Bible. Because <laughs> it seems to go the exact opposite of what we saw in verse 2. He doesn't cry aloud, lift up his voice, doesn't make his voice heard in the streets. Um, but here, here he goes. I'll cry out. I'll cry out like a woman yeah. in labor. I will lay waste mountains and hills. Um, it's it's a, it's a really hard contrast to see. But what we're seeing here is God's vision for ultimately what He's going to do. And as much as He comes in Jesus, meek and gentle and riding on a donkey, ultimately <clears throat> the victory He brings will be like a world-changing victory. Um, every knee will bow. Every tongue will will confess. Um, although he, Jesus comes in one way, ultimately the result is that the Lord goes out like a mighty man, and that this right. is something that is going to change the whole world. Right. Yes. Well, and we should spend a little bit more time talking about that, but first got to go into our break. But everybody, hang on. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 42 here on Thy Strong Word. We'll be right back. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. 
but they need our help because Good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, everybody, to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 42, and we're joined today by Pastor Brian Davies, pastor of Lord of Glory Lutheran Church in Grace Lake, Illinois. We just read this part that might be a little bit perplexing here in verses 10 through 17. You know, we just had this description of this, you know, meek and mild servant of God, and then here comes God loud and powerful, right? And it's a very interesting mix of metaphors too, like a man of war on the one hand, but also like a woman in labor. Uh, he, either way, just the loudest people you can find, basically. So, you yeah. know, what's 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 going on with this juxtaposition? I was, I was just about to suggest, um, in, in the local context, it, it, it feels like it makes sense because there's God's people in exile in Babylon, and they themselves are meek, mild, um, you know, not really making a loud sound. But when Cyrus of Persia rolls in, I mean, <laughs> it's anything uh, but that. You know, it's going to mm-hmm. be with a lot of power and glory and all the rest of it. And, and Cyrus is going to conquer just, I mean, everything. And his empire is going to be even larger than the Babylonian Empire um, till that point. So in, in the context, in the nearer context, it, it sort of adds up. But when we apply it to Jesus, it, it can be a little bit confusing. Like, how do you get both those things in the ministry of our Lord? Yeah. A um, couple of thoughts come to mind. Number one, you, you're right. We we kind of see the opposite with the suffering servant, Jesus. And part of, um, like a lamb led to slaughter, so he does not open his mouth. Okay, we got that part of the suffering of Jesus. But also, um, you know, if you've seen gibson's depiction of it in the passion of the christ Mm. it is loud it is yeah it is horrific it is bloody i mean it's difficult to visually see and so um when the wrath of god comes down you know everybody knows it and thanks be to god as christians we rejoice that wrath of god has come down on jesus christ and that doesn't come down on me and you who by faith believe that jesus took it for all took it for all of us and so I think part of it, we want to see that, you know, what gets done to Jesus is not this meek and mild thing. It's this powerful, all the wrath of God pulling down and getting put in all of humanity gets put on Jesus. It's a mighty thing. And then ultimately, I think eschatologically, we want to think about this in terms of when Jesus comes back again, you know, it's not going to, I say to our church, we're not going to have to have a voters meeting to determine whether or not it really is Jesus. Like, everybody's going to know. You know, there's going to be, I mean, every believer, unbeliever, they're going to say, surely that is the Son of God. And so, um, you know, we we, we do get a meek and mild entrance of Jesus, but when the second coming of Jesus comes, you know, we're not going to have to debate it. Right, yes, I'm looking forward to the end of voters' meetings uh, in the eschaton and the second coming of the <laughs> the Lord Jesus. But uh, for for now, they are they are necessary. But uh, yeah, I think I think that's well said. That you see the the loud, powerful, warlike wrath of God, 
um, poured out on Jesus himself, you know, which is which is really kind of the paradoxical thing that, you know, in the case of the exiles, you know, I mean, the, the wrath is poured out on Babylon and then they are the ones who are like the, the meek and humble recipients of the blessing. Um, and, and yet with Jesus, it's, it's kind of both that that Jesus is, you know, he's he's meek and he's mild um, and he will eventually receive the the blessing. But he's also going to receive the, the punishment and the wrath on the cross before he is raised to new life on Easter morning. The, the other side of that, I, I, we can't forget the, the gospel reading that we had just this past Sunday, last Sunday of the church here, you know, with Luke chapter 21, you know, this, this description that Jesus gives sounds a lot like this part of Isaiah, you know, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. And he has this description of what's going to happen to the temple, you know, and he says there, that you know, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not mm-hmm. be thrown down, and so there, I feel like there is this sense in which, you know, Jesus, uh, there, there is a sense in which when the temple is destroyed, in in the year A.D. seventy, that is kind of part of our Lord's coming. You know, he describes that as like you'll you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. That 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 is kind of the part, the wrathful part of his coming that we kind of didn't see during his ministry um that there there is still that that wrath that gets poured out and you know very ironically you know here you know just there's so many levels of irony here here you know god's pouring out the wrath um to save his people from the babylonians right and in the case of our lord jesus with the destruction of the temple he's using the romans to destroy the temple um but ironically, still, it's still to the benefit of God's people, because as we're spread out all over the face of the earth from that point, the diaspora, he uses it to bring all nations to the faith. Yes. I think of it as, uh, you know, kicking a dead dandelion. Um, you know, all the mm. seed goes everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, you think you're doing a good thing in, in kicking it. Um, but the reality is you've just seeded your whole lawn again. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a really good analogy for it. Right. Yeah, the Romans could could feel like, oh, okay, we're gonna we're gonna put this down, right? You know, no no yeah. more of this weird monotheism thing, this all this Hebrew scriptures, whatever. It just it just breeds nothing but revolution and, and chaos, right? And they're gonna kick that dandelion and man, they are not gonna know what happened next, right? Yeah, ab- yep. absolutely. That there is just, um, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, that's the image that even Paul uses, or even our Lord Jesus uses. That, you know, the the seed has to, the flower in a sense has to die. That seed has to go into the ground, right, for there to yep. be that that crop, that plant, that new life that grows up out of it. Well, let's consider now the the last section here in Isaiah 42, because I think this is where it all really gets tied together. And as you were saying, I think this is kind of what helps us understand the ironies of God's servant a little bit more clearly. You know, it's been talking about, you know, God leading the blind in a way that they do not know and opening the eyes of the blind. So kind of these positive images, right? But here we're going to see that God calls his own servant blind. And so how, how does that work? Let's look at this second um, and very important half of Isaiah 42 here, beginning with verse 18. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, 
or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind is my dedicated one, or blind is the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him all on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. And that and that last verse is just, I mean, it's it's damning, right? Like it set him all oh, on goodness. fire, but he did not understand. I mean, it's just God pours out the wrath, but they they did not get the lesson. You know, here's God, you know, punishing, and it's supposed to bring repentance. It's supposed to, you know, elicit like I'm sorry, I realized what I've done, but but no, just you know, like blindness and deafness and numbness to the punishment, and that's the image of God's own people. This is one of those moments where we read a text in the, in, in, in a public worship service, you know, it set them on fire all around, didn't understand, burned them up. Um, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, yeah. this is a tough one. Um, yeah. A couple quick thoughts come to mind. Um, again, um, you know, Let's have compassion on folks who say the Bible's hard to understand, because the first yeah. part is, um, this is my servant, my servant has his spirit, um, my servant will do this and that, my servant is perfect, and then here we're getting, um, who's who's as blind as my servant? So I think let's right. first draw a distinction. The first part of Isaiah 42, you know, is talking about uh, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect suffering servant on our behalf. Now, the way I understand it, 42.18 is talking about his servant Israel and their faithlessness. So mm. all that we see here is, you know, a, a condemnation of the people who saw all this and didn't respond. Other thing I'll say is, um, this is the part of the Bible I think we got to hold the Bible in one hand and the mirror in the other. Yeah. The first part has been talking about Jesus and really set the stage for who Jesus is, now it's time for the people to respond. And it's time for us to respond by faith. And Israel had a failure to hear and see. Um, and so, you know, I guess I'd invite our listeners to look at this again in light of this is God addressing Israel and addressing us both of whom have failed to be the Lord's servants. And so because that is them and us, we are called blind. We are called deaf. We've seen many things. Our eyes are open. Uh, our ears are open, but we don't hear. And I think I take that as law to me. And how many times has God made known his love and grace to me? And I've been made a recipient of it. But how many times have I still failed and sinned against 
heaven and against God and against my fellow man in light of everything I know and have seen. Right. Yeah, no, that's so, yeah. that's so that's so needful to hear. I mean, it's I mean, really, it's just it's it's terrible when you think about it, that we we have this. I, I always tell people, you know, you need to cut some slack for the people that in in the old testament you know we go because we read we read the old testament we read the new testament too for that matter and we're like how dense were the disciples right oh mm-hmm. peter there you go saying that or we look at the old testament we're like they're so hard-hearted why would they mm-hmm. just turn from god just in a generation like that you know did they just forget that god did all that and we and we have a this this position of like you know, well we would have never done that right but I mean, I mean, really think about it. I mean, here we are. We have the benefit of the entirety of the scriptures, right? I mean, you know, the people in the Lord's day, you know, the the ministry of the disciples, they were lucky if they had a fragment of the Isaiah scroll, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, but here we are. We have literally twenty four seven access to the Bible, like on our phones, yeah. everywhere yeah. we go. We we have the benefit of two thousand years of church history. I mean, we, we have the benefit of vividly seeing the fulfillment of all things um, in our Lord Jesus Christ and in whose sacraments we participate regularly. We have seen everything. We've had everything unveiled and uncovered, and yet we still are blind and deaf, and it's poured out, and we don't see it or understand it. I mean, like, it's just all the more damning for us. I mean, how could we be the ones who don't get it after everything yeah. God's shown. Yeah, well said. And best of all, we have KFUOAM850. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think right. that, that everything you just said, I feel the same way. And the Christian ought to be, in my opinion, doubly compassionate on those who know not hope we know but still choose sin i mean sometimes right. it feels like our our presenting posture toward them is one of judgment like how could you do that you know how right. could you make that decision right. when the reality is i mean thanks be to god i don't know about you but i had parents who brought me to a church and brought me to sunday school and like i was raised in this i know this like i know better and i the verse that kind of I take as both law and gospel is <clears throat> to whom much has been given, much is expected. To whom much yeah. has been trusted, much will be asked. I think that is true of us, and all for all the reasons you said, it is true of the Christian. We have regular reception of the Lord's Supper for free. You know, we have right. God's Word at our disposal in our own language. We can study it with whoever we want, whenever we want, without fear of persecution. So, you know, if we ought to look upon judgment on anyone. We ought to look in judgment upon ourselves because we are Israel 2.0. And so I think this is a tough word. It was a tough word for them. But like you said, we ought not throw darts at them or the disciples. We ought to say, holy cow, how much worse off are we who know so much more uh, and yet make this very same decisions, if not worse ones? Yeah, I, I I think you're so right that, you know, there's this connection, I think, between, you know, how we approach others and then our own estimation of ourselves. You know, people these days, I mean, because we're still like living in the wake of like the self-esteem movement, right? And we're starting to figure out that maybe some of that was a little bit excessive, <laughs> right? Mm. The psychologists are kind of like beginning to say like, 
so there's there's some bad mental health out outcomes actually mm -hmm. <laughs> um but but yeah i mean so we're you know we're, we're still inclined to be like oh don't beat yourself up and oh you don't have anything to be ashamed of right that's our line you have nothing to apologize for right so we're we're still kind of riding this wave culturally speaking and so we have this repulsion from saying things like i a poor miserable sinner confessing to you all my sins and iniquities right and mm. all the rest of it but if we took seriously our own sin if we took seriously just just how awful it is that we still sin even with the benefit of all the blessings available to israel 2.0 as you were saying then how, we would we would never go to people in a spirit of arrogance right we would never condemn mm. people as as our reflex we would we would have so much sympathy if we thought if we thought rightly and soberly on our own sin you know i, I mean it's that that phrase that's uh, sometimes used you know beggars showing beggars where to find bread right if we understood the poverty and the depth of our own depravity the kind of humility and gentleness that we would have with other people I mean, you know, there's there's a there's a strong connection. I think that you just made the case for it. You know, we we've got to hold up this mirror, and if we do, and God convicts us, that's what makes us then gentle like Christ, not bruising a reed and not burning out or blowing out a faintly burning wick. I mean, I think that's the connection that Israel. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that this last section, I think, more clearly and directly applies to us and the first section is more directly applicable to our lord but there's a connection that's held together in the body of christ and that is that the exiles uh, having this punishment being made blind and deaf and all the rest now can be the servants who are gentle with those who are in darkness with those who have not heard the word of god and so it is with us that we're made like christ by god's grace us who have been saved from such darkness and blindness ultimately and thanks be to god for that like so um this does a good job of breaking us you know i think it does if we're if we let it and this is clearly the word of god breaking us but ultimately we say you know lord to whom shall we go and then he says um, I have absorbed all the wrath of God the Father for that sin and all of your sins, past, present, and future, um, on the cross. You know, this is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased because he does this for you. So we live then not, you know, burdened by trying to make it right with God. Um, instead, right. we live free. Like you said, uh, beggars showing beggars where to find bread. Like, thanks be to God, we can show and point people the relationship the way. Right. And, and, and you have that description, you know, um, here, here we are described as God's blind servant, right? But it was earlier in verse 16 that he said, I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. I mean, there really is something to that when God, you know, reaches into the life of a sinner and, and brings them forgiveness and absolution and that free grace that's not based on anything that they perform or any like inherent goodness of their own, but all just God's own goodness and grace that when, when God does that for us, the, the sympathy then that we're able to show for people who have, who are currently struggling with the same sins that we, um, you know, used to struggle with and in some ways still do. I mean, like there's something about that, that, 
you know, when, when God goes and he takes a, a clearly broken sinner, right, and turns their, their life around, I mean, the, the way that that opens up the grace for others, I mean, it's powerful. And, you know, I can think mm-hmm. of a few contemporary examples how there's just, you know, people who you're just like, really, that guy? Right. Mm-hmm. But then like when, when, when God turns around his life, I mean, it's powerful what happens mm-hmm. next. Thanks be to God for that. And he's done that for me. I trust he's done that for you as well. And then that's, we get to be a part of making that, making this story known. And, and it's, it's interesting then, you know, um, I think you were starting to get into that. We, we have these moments where we're, we're imperfect. We're in, imperfect uh representations but that mirror right by god's grace um we we become mirrors ourselves in the sense that we reflect christ right after the mirror has shown us just how terrible the sin in us is right and that we Mm -hmm. have no standing to to be imperious in our judgment against people but then by god's grace the mirror is that we have these moments where we reflect christ's life and it's not it's not all the time, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's, it, we, we certainly mess it up still often, but we have, we have these moments where people in us will see that, that, that meek, mild uh, man of God, you know, who does not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street or a bruised reed he will not break. They, they see that in us. And, and so I just, I, I think about that, you know, how can we as the church you know, have that kind of a spirit, you know, in 2019 here, as we witness to this, this world that, that knows so much darkness, as you were saying. Mm. Yeah. To echo that, um, concept of mirroring, I think of uh, Romans eight eleven, and Paul does it a couple times, but I think in Romans eight eleven it's clearest. He talks about the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead <clears throat> is living in us. And so when we then get broken by the second part or, you know, the last part of 42, we look back and say, hey, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit given to us in baptism that was, act, was you know, given to Jesus, the suffering servant, and in whom produced all this faithfulness by God's grace and power and strength, is at work and living in us. It's been given to us in baptism. We don't earn it. Uh, we don't get it through righteousness of our own. It's just given to us. We have it, and it lives in us. And we want to feed that and nurture it by God's gifts as much as possible. It is by the same Spirit. The same Spirit is at work in all of us. I mean, that's that's so humbling that... Uh, I mean, that, that, that's, that means that's what it is. It's, it's so humbling that God would work you know, and to a certain extent in the same way in us as he worked in his own son, even, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, uh, I, I mean, it, it sounds scandalous to, to say it out loud even. I mean, and just to think about how there is a sense in which even, you know, that these words, um, you know, deaf, blind, right? How those things even apply to our Lord Jesus, how, of course, you know, he knew all things, you know, he, I mean, in his, in his divinity, right? omniscient, right? Omnipresent mm-hmm. and all the rest, every other omni, right? But that mm-hmm. he becomes small like us, small to the point of he doesn't um, 
know things, right? He confesses that, like, you know, I don't, I don't know. That's for the Father to know, right? Because he has yeah. deliberately put his knowledge aside and put his power aside, right? He's made himself small, and then, I mean, he made himself smallest, and ultimately when he died, because he died the death of of sinful people in the sense that when he died, he was deaf. He was blind. Mm-hmm. He went into the darkness of death. I mean, it's just... um. It, it really is unthinkable just to think about how, you know, God who sees all things and hears all things allowed himself to be weak and silenced like that on the cross and in the tomb. Yeah, that's Philippians 2, I believe. You know, right. um, although equal to God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, which is more servant language. So I guess yeah. as we reflect on this chapter, I hope it helps people see Jesus and who the servant is. Uh, it sees how he comes, both, um, you know, not loud, uh, a burning wick, he won't, a faint, faintly burning wick he won't quench, but also when justice comes, it will come and everyone will know it. So our response um, let's not have a failure to hear and see the mighty things God has done. Amen. Amen. Brother, thank you so much. Uh, the way that I think that you've helped us break down this chapter, I think clearly we can see Jesus in chapter 42 here and the grace and mercy that he has for us in our own situation. Yeah, thank you. Thanks be to God for this wonderful chapter, a wonderful conversation, and I bless pray God's blessings upon God's people studying and diving into this text. And to you and the people at Lord of Glory and Grace Lake. Thank you. Thank you. Every, absolutely. Everybody, Pastor Brian Davies, Grace Lake, Illinois. Thanks for joining us today. We also thank our underwriters at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, lhfmissions.org. Until next time, I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. Peace. You've been listening to Thy Strong Word, produced by the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate Office of National Mission in cooperation with Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.